I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning for our session to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'd like to read a text to you this morning and then uh, just say a word of thanks to those who uh, have so graciously invited me to come and be a part of uh, your annual conference. I'm thankful for the men who will be uh, joining me in the ministry of the Word during these days. And I'm excited at the opportunity to open the Word of God together with you. And I count it a great privilege. So I'm thankful for uh, Dr. Vargas and others who were so gracious in extending me the invitation. The text I'd like uh, to read this morning is one that has been the theme of uh, the conference and those who arranged the conference selected this theme. And so I want to read that text and then I want to bring a particular piece of that uh, uh, that theme to bear on a topic that is uh, one that the Lord has laid on my heart for our time together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthians, and he says to them, beginning in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And he's talking about the fact that as he ministers uh, amidst the Corinthian believers and as the believers at Corinth and those who lead them are charged to carry out the gospel ministry and the work of the church, they are not to do so by human carnal means, but there are weapons that God has forged and there is a way that God has ordained for that warfare and for that ministry to be carried forth. And that is going to require something. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons that God has given to every believer, the weapons that God has given to those who lead his body and those who lead churches are weapons that when used appropriately and correctly, in the hand of men who will place those weapons at the disposal of Christ, will find that those weapons are energized by the Spirit of God to the pulling down of strongholds. He noted this in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every high or lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so as you think about how the text is framing up what we're talking about this morning, the warfare that we are engaged in requires the use of weapons that are not normal, ordinary weapons. They are actually the words of Christ that are found in the Word of God that are energized for bringing people to a place where they are coming into obedience to Christ. And you can see that as we read our text together. So we have already heard a message on bringing every thought captive in a hostile world. And I'm thankful for uh, John and uh, the way that uh, Brother Shim worked uh, that text in, in our presence. And then, of course, uh, Ken Ham bringing every thought captive in our defense of creation. And then uh, Dr. Vargas bringing every thought camp, uh, captive in our stand for Christ. And so I would like really to kind of round this out by suggesting that as we come to a text like this, and as we think about the mission that God has given to us as men who lead his church, that we bring every thought captive to obey Christ. 
And I want us to come to a unique but very familiar place where the words of Christ are very clear in a matter that uh, we are to obey and certainly to carry out uh, a spiritual warfare against the gates of hell and against the forces of evil. All of us are familiar with these words. And in fact, every time we hear these words or we, we bring these words out, we, we sort of mentally check out because they're so familiar to us. And I'm talking really about the, the words of Christ in the final chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We know these words as the Great Commission. We have read those words. We have memorized those words. We have heard multiplied sermons on those words. We, we have prayed about those words, and many of us are deeply engaged in our own attempt uh, to obey those words. And yet all of us would agree that for the most part, the evangelical church at large, and even for all of our good speaking and all of our emphasis, our own churches in, much, uh, in, 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 in many regards have domesticated the, the power of these words. We have diminished the fullness of the intent of these words. And sadly, we have truncated the content of its truth claims and its demands. And so at a conference, when we're all gathered together and we are talking about bringing every thought captive, we want to really begin, I think, at least with the idea that what we are bringing our own thinking captive to is the words of Christ. And so I would really like to take some time uh, this morning to talk about what it means to bring our thinking in line and in captivity to the words that Jesus has actually said with regard to the mission of his church. And I would suggest to you that as the head of the church, he clearly articulated a sufficient strategy for the advancement of the church uh, in, in a pagan culture. Our, our leader, the head of our church, the head of our individual churches, as well as the head of the collective church, has given us a strategy, and we must bring our thinking in line with what he has said about that strategy. Now, let me just make some observations about the strategy itself. The strategy, as the head of the church articulated, is a divinely designed strategy. In other words, it didn't, design, it didn't come from us. It's not that a bunch of us kind of sat down and looked at uh, the culture around us and the particular set of circumstances in which we find ourselves and in which our churches have been called to live out the gospel. And we have had to come up with a strategy to attack and to wage spiritual warfare in that context. The strategy that the head of the church has designed for us is one that he designed. In other words, it did not originate with us. And then I want you to notice as we look at these words together that it's not just divinely designed, it's unique and it is singular. It is, it is not one of several strategies. It's not one of a, a couple of other good ideas and we can sort of pick and choose and decide which one we're going to do in any given uh, context. In essence, this strategy that is being articulated by the Lord for his church and for her leaders is divinely designed and it's unique and it's singular. And then I want you to notice that it's timeless. This strategy is for every church in any age, in any cultural setting. This is the strategy that the head of the church 
has articulated for the leaders of his church and those who serve in his church to carry out as they bring their thoughts captive to his words. And then I want you to notice that it's universal. This strategy is divinely designed. It's unique and singular. It's timeless and it is universal. It works anywhere with any group of people, with any ethnicity, with any nation, with any tribe or with any tongue. So if God's strategy for advancing the church is wrapped up in this concept that we have come to know as the Great Commission, I think it serves us well as we strive to bring every thought captive to the words of Christ to review that strategy and then to commit ourselves anew to teaching that strategy and and energizing ourselves in the work of that strategy as we serve as under-shepherds in the church that our our own Lord and Savior uh, died for and purchased with his own blood. And so here's how I thought we would do this in our time together. I would like to uh, take some time in the first part of our time together to examine five major texts in which the head of the church speaks directly to this strategy. And then after we look at those five major texts, I'd like for us to examine and embrace three massive implications for our lives and ministries, personally and corporately, that come out of those texts. And so that's really what I'm asking the Lord to help us to do. And I would like to take a moment and ask you to bow with me and let's pray that the Lord would help us to do that. Our Father, as we come together for this conference, how thankful we are that we have your word and we have your spirit and we have your promise. And Lord, as we attempt to bring our thinking in line with your words, as we live our faith out in a hostile world and as we defend your account of creation and as we stand for Christ, Lord, we desperately want to obey you. And we want to come to that place where your words begin to shape not just what we do with our hands, but how we think in our minds and how we feel in our souls and what we do with our lives and in our ministries. And so, Lord, give us wisdom as we look at these texts. I pray that your spirit would help me to deliver your truth. And then, Lord, we're all going to need help, myself included, in receiving that truth and applying that truth in our own lives first and then in our ministries. And so, Lord, we thank you and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Five major texts that announce uh, and inform us regarding the gospel strategy that God has set forth through his son, Jesus Christ, for his church. And the first of those is the one that I referenced a moment ago, and probably the one that is most familiar to us uh, that we know as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And we can begin our reading in verse 16. Very familiar words. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. A very interesting reference to a mountain here and uh, certainly harkens back to uh, the psalm that uh, really sets out the messianic mission, Psalm 2 where God announces to the kings of the nations that he has chosen a king to rule over them, and he has set that king on his holy mountain. And then he counsels the nations to kiss this son 
and to submit joyfully to him, lest the anger of this son rise against them and dash them in pieces. Well, here you find that son, the resurrected son in glory as he is about to ascend to the father, standing on a mountain, speaking to his emissaries and saying to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here, here is that invitation now that was referenced in Psalm 2 that is about to be delivered to the authoritative emissaries of this king who is now uh, charging them with a responsibility. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, these verses are very familiar to us as believers. And I would venture to say that there's probably not a pastor or one who serves in any kind of preaching ministry in the local church who has not at one time or another, and probably on multiple occasions, come to this very text. And so I, uh, I don't come uh, this morning with any idea that I'm going to contribute something new or novel to your thinking, but by way of reminder, I, I want you to notice as we think about this first set of verses where the Lord lays out the strategy that he wants us to uh, embrace as we go about building uh, his church under his authority and by the power of his spirit. I I want you to notice that this particular set of texts give to us the objective and the authority for this commission. There is a specific objective, and then there is supreme authority that stands behind what Jesus is asking us to do. And you can see that that's where the Lord starts, all authority, supreme authority over things in heaven and on earth, and certainly as the head of the church over the church. And so when Jesus is talking here, he is talking authoritatively, and he is giving very specific instruction about the mission that he wants his disciples to give themselves to. And that mission, that singular directive that is in the text here is simply this, make disciples of the nations. Make disciples of the nations. Now, how do we do that? And Jesus' answer is, you make a disciple of the nations by introducing them to the message of the gospel about Jesus. If we are really going to bring our thinking captive to the words of Christ, then here's where we start. We start by embracing this unique strategy that Christ, with all of the authority that his Father has given to him in heaven and on earth, charged us to do, and that is to introduce the nations to the message of the gospel about Jesus. And then as they come to know that message and hear that message, the second part of making a disciple is to initiate the nations or those who are from the nations as true and obedient believers who are part of the genuine body of Christ. What an incredible opportunity and yet what an incredible challenge we have as men who lead the church, particularly the part of the body of Christ that we serve here in the United States of America, where we have an opportunity literally at our fingertips to introduce 
every nation, every tongue, and every tribe to the new, uh, to the true message, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then uh, as the Spirit of God begins to do His work, the work we can't do, when He begins to open their eyes so that they see the beauty and the truth of the gospel in the face of Jesus, and they become believers, we initiate them as true and obedient members into the genuine body of Christ. And then we instruct them to follow and embrace and obey the truths that were taught by Jesus Christ. And those truths are contained in the book that we all preach from every weekend, the Word of God, the authoritative, inerrant, inspired, infallible, and sufficient Word of God for all of faith and practice. And so this is a huge objective with a very specific directive that we would go to the nations and that we would announce to them, that we would introduce to them the message of the gospel about Jesus. And that as the Spirit of God begins to draw them into that message, that we would have a part in initiating them as true and obedient members into the body of Christ, and then instructing them to follow and embrace and obey the truths that are taught in the words that Jesus Christ inspired through his apostles and by his Spirit in uh, the New Testament particularly, but in the entire Bible generally. And so that, that becomes really the anchor text. So that's our first text, Matthew chapter 28, where we find the objective and the directive the authority behind that directive. But our second text is in Mark chapter 16. And without getting into any lengthy discussions about the ending of Mark, let me simply call attention to the the great commission that was stated by Mark, uh, or at least contained in Mark, as stated by the Lord, beginning in verse 14. Mark records, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who who saw him after he had risen. And then verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. If Our text in Matthew, if the commission account in Matthew gave to us the objective and the authority of our our mission as a church, Mark's account of the commission gives to us the breadth and the scope of this commission. Where are we to go to find the nations that we are to announce this incredible gospel of Jesus to? And Mark's answer to that is, we are to do this throughout the world. No one in the world is to be excluded. No one, regardless of status or religion or creed or deed, is out of bounds for the gospel announcement. Nowhere is to be avoided. There are no people groups. There are no places where believers are not to take this gospel which answers an incredible question for us as we think about uh, living in a world where uh, there are actual laws made by duly established governing authorities that prohibit the preaching of the gospel or the coming of a missionary. And here we have the one who is over those nations, 
the one who has been given all authority, telling us that there are no nations and no people groups anywhere in the world that are to be excluded. And so you and I may pay a tremendous price to obey this command, but there is certainly grounds for the obedience of this command and the embracing of this strategy. And what this means, I think, for us is that you and I are are really called to embrace thinking that is committed to taking the gospel where it isn't. Go where the gospel isn't. There are still people groups that have not been reached. There are countries, for the most part, that are yet uh, under the power of pagan darkness that desperately need bold believers who are willing to listen to the word of Christ, to bring every thought captive to the word of Christ and take that gospel and take that word to places where it may cost them their life to do so. We have to go where the gospel isn't. We have to go where the gospel is. I think it is, it is equally important to take the gospel around the corner as it is to take it around the world. And then I think we have to make the gospel proclamation a primary focus of our thinking and our strategy when we start thinking about what our mission is as a church. We are to do the work of evangelists, and and certainly we are to do that uh, as one of our primary tasks uh, as as laid forth uh, by the Lord. And then certainly to reflect and display the power of that gospel uh, by unleashing it, not, not manipulating and not trying to figure out ways to convince people that the gospel is true. That's really not my task, and that's certainly not your task. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is very clear about this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he talks about the fact that, that God is going to have to do in the heart of an unbeliever the very work that he did at the very beginning of the creation when he caused light to shine out of darkness. You and I as believers and the church is described by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians as God's new creation. And that new creation came into being by the word of his power, just like the original creation came into being by the word of his power. And until God causes light to shine in the heart of an unbeliever so that that new creation can come into being and old things will begin to pass away, until the Spirit of God causes that to happen, then we labor in vain. And so that's why all of our own manipulations, all of our own ways of trying to adjust the gospel so that it will be more palatable to the people around us really are a significant departure from our our theme of bringing every thought and every strategy and every idea captive to the work of Christ and to the word of Christ. And so I think as we come to Mark and we see this text, it gives to us the breadth and the scope of our commission. And then our third text this morning of the five that we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 24. And if uh, our, our text in Matthew chapter 28 gave us our objective and the authority behind that objective, and Mark speaks to us about the breadth and the scope of this commission as we go to every creature in every place around the world, what are we to say to them What are we to announce when we get there? And I think the answer to that is in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, where Jesus lays out and Luke records the content and the message of the gospel that we are to 
uh, take around the world. And so begin reading with me in the 44th verse of the 24th chapter of Luke. Jesus uh, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. A reference there to the entire Old Testament. And then in verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, This or thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Here are the words of Christ explaining to these men who are now going to be his emissaries the truth about himself, the truth about his ministry and his identity and his mission and certainly tying it all together in the overarching idea of an anointed, appointed champion that would come from God to the nations to bring about a deliverance from sin and from the curse and from the works of the devil. And he is that individual. And he is clearly identifying himself in this way, and he is opening up the minds of these men so that they will understand that and know that and embrace that. And I I know that we know this and I know that we embrace this as pastors, but has it really become the dominant theme of your thinking that the entire Bible points to the identity of a champion? And through this champion, God is going to reconcile the world to himself. He is going to deliver sinners from their sin. He is going to remove the curse from the face of the earth. He is going to restore creation to its original purpose and its original condition. He is going to reconcile men and women who were alienated because of their own sins and bring them not into just a good relationship with God, but actually into sonship so that they will become part of his family. They will become part of the redeemed community that he has chosen to uh, deliver through this amazing anointed appointed champion. And here Jesus is saying to the men who are now coming to understand that it it is your mission to go everywhere and announce two things. You need to announce that a remission for sin has been made, that it has been offered, it has been completed, and it has been accepted. And it has happened through the work and the ministry and the mission of an anointed, appointed Messiah, Christ, in the Old Testament, who is now standing before you, Jesus of Nazareth. And so you are to go everywhere and announce that a remission for sins has been made and is now being offered to anybody who will do two things. Repent and believe. That's an astonishing statement if you stop and think about it. You and I have been listening in this conference to the idea that we need to bring every thought captive 
to the words of Jesus. And here are his words by which the entire universe is remade and rescued and delivered from all that is wrong, all that is evil, everything that is going on in our culture, everything that has been afflicting us in these last months is resolved here through the work of an anointed, appointed Messiah who is coming to deliver the world. And you and I are to take that message as his authorized emissaries. And we are to deliver that message everywhere, not just in the United States of America, not just in our community. We are to take that message and we are to announce it to the nations. And the message at its core is this, God's anointed, appointed champion has identified himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, has made a remission for sins. And that remission is available now to anybody who will repent of those sins and believe in him and in what he has done. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking up ways to grow our churches. I mean, all you have to do is go to a bookstore, get on Amazon, or go to the Gospel Coalition, and you can pull up thousands of articles, thousands of webinars, thousands of books that are designed to help you find the next best way to grow your attendance on a Sunday morning. And if we're really going to bring our thoughts captive to the words of Jesus, we're going to have to come back to these texts that we did not think up, that we did not invent, that we don't get to nuance. And we're going to have to think about these texts collectively and holistically so that we truly understand how the head of the church designed his church to grow. And the strategy that he gave is the one that we're identifying here. And and Luke is saying, at the heart of that is an announcement that you are to make with regard to the mission, the ministry, and the identity of God's anointed champion who is going to reconcile the world to himself. And that champion is Jesus. And he has said to you, you are to go everywhere to everyone with my authority and with my power. And you are to announce that I have made remission for sins and it is available to those who will repent and believe. Well, what can we expect when we actually do that? On, one, on the one hand, we certainly can expect opposition, and I don't think we have to look very far to think about that. But, but on the other hand, what did Jesus himself say we could expect? And we find that in John chapter 15, where we find the fourth text in this uh, holistic group of texts regarding uh, the mission that uh, the Lord has left us with. Let me read verse 16 uh, to you and and I think you'll see how, how this text unfolds uh, in, in, in the Gospel of John. John says, or Jesus says rather uh, to his disciples here, this portion of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And I would suggest to you that in the heart of that wonderful passage, that wonderful paragraph that Jesus left with his disciples, 
was the assurance that their ministry would not be in vain any more than his ministry had been in vain. I mean, think about the incredible impact of the ministry of the Lord through the incarnation and through uh, the atonement that he made on the cross through his death and his burial and his resurrection. Think about the ongoing global impact of that uh, in the centuries that have followed since that uh, atonement was physically made in time and space. Think about these men who are receiving this promise before it actually took place. And you can see immediately that the Lord was very serious when he said to us, now when you go in my name, when you go with my authority and in my presence to the nations, when you go to every, every country, every nation, every tribe, and, and you go there and you announce this message that a remission for sin has been made and is available to anyone who will repent and believe, you will have fruit. You will have fruit. And the kind of fruit that you will have is very different than the kind of fruit that many of us have become sort of jaded by and accustomed to hearing and sort of discouraged by, and that is fruit that comes for a moment and then we, we see all of these outward expressions and, and responses. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, there is no real lasting fruit. And Jesus said, that's not the kind of fruit I'm talking about. When you bring your thinking captive to my words about the strategy that I have laid out for you to follow for the building of my church, you will have fruit and that fruit will remain. That fruit will abide. It will last under temptation. It will last under trial. It will resist the wiles of Satan. It will survive because you have taught them, not just about me, you have actually integrated them into the life of the church. They belong to me and you have taught them my word. And it is my word that is going to keep them in this world. It is going to be my word that is going to sanctify them. It is my word that is going to strengthen them. It is my word that is going to help them to endure under difficulty and, and tribulation and trial. And it is my word that is going to help them to recognize temptation and give them the strategies by where you can resist that temptation. And so when you take my strategy, which isn't just announcing the gospel to them, and letting them know who I am and what I have done, it's actually discipling them, making a genuine follower out of them. And that involves introducing them, not just to the concept of the gospel, but initiating them into that gospel as God the Father opens their eyes so they see the beauty and the truth of that gospel in the face of Jesus, and they become a member of his family and a participant in his church. And you begin then to take the words that I gave you and I have taught you, and you begin to teach them, they will abide. That's the strategy. And Jesus says to you and to me, you need to bring your thinking in line with my words. Think about how often we sort of dichotomize evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is what we do on Thursday night. Evangelism is something that happens 
uh, on Saturday morning and 50 of us come and we go out and we do a survey. And I'm not certainly saying those things are wrong and certainly know many people who have come to genuine faith as a result of that. But I, I, I think sometimes we truncate the, the, the Great Commission. We truncate the strategy when we do that. Or we think of evangelism primarily as the work of a gifted few in the body and really not the responsibility of the church at large. Or we think of evangelism and church growth primarily in terms of how it affects our individual congregation and what happens uh, on Sunday morning at our own particular address, and we domesticate it. We don't necessarily think about the radical risks that sometimes have to happen in order for the strategy for the building of God's church to take place around the world. And it involves really our coming to grips with all of these words and not just a portion of them. And that really brings us uh, to the final question. And that final question is this, if this really is the strategy, who is sufficient for this? I don't think any of us here would question the strategy as we've seen it unfold in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and now in John. We don't question the veracity of the words or the accuracy of them or the intent of them. But sometimes I think we wonder, at least I do, Lord, can can it really happen in my life? Can it really happen in my ministry? Lord, what will actually happen to me if I take these words seriously and insist on them in my own life? And, and then actually exhort the people under my preaching ministry to do them and, and to embrace them and to live by them as a matter of obedience. What, what will happen to my church? What will happen to my ministry? What opposition will come? What misunderstandings will come? What theological conflicts will come when I simply take the words that I have read in these four texts and, and then, Lord, what if I do all of this and, and nothing happens? What if, what if I actually take this gospel to the church and insist that the church take this gospel to the community and we suffer persecution and instead of growth, there is actual shrinkage? What if, what if in the undoing of, uh, in the doing of, of this mandate, there is the undoing of our own local expression of the church? What do I do? How do I, how do I gather the strength to do this? And I think that is why the Lord gave us instruction in Luke where he said to us, now I am, I'm going to send you the promise that my father gave you and I want you to wait in Jerusalem until that promise comes. And so that brings us to the final place, the fifth place in our New Testament where the Lord spoke directly about this strategy. And of course, it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you and I know this. Let me uh, begin reading in verse 6 of chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, that is the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was on their minds. That was in in their thinking and in their heart. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Now remember back in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus talked about his authority and that's what he wants the disciples to return to. 
But you, he said, will receive power, ability, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then, of course, you know in verse 9, he is lifted up, he ascends to the Father, and then there is this great promise that is left with these men who are now charged with taking the gospel to the world that he will one day come again in a visible way. So we have here in uh, the eighth verse, uh, the authority and the ability promised to us to do this. In other words, as we think about the immensity of the strategy and the potential cost of the strategy, Jesus is saying to us, as he said to these men, I will give you the energy that you need. I will give you the ability to do this. And it is not an energy that you possess in your own strength. It is not an ability that you have within yourselves, individually or collectively. It is not the strength of a thousand believers gathered together in one place, armed with tracks and and all kinds of gospel paraphernalia or paraphernalia going into a community. It is not that strength that Jesus is talking about. It it is not the the intense dominant will of a very vocal leader who stands in front of a congregation and by the sheer force of his words and by the sheer dominance of his personality moves an entire congregation to stand up and go and, and engage in an evangelistic activity. That is not the power that Jesus is talking about here in Acts chapter 1. He is saying to you and to me in our own humility and in our own fearfulness, If you will simply take this message to everyone around you, to every nation, to every tongue, to every tribe, I will give you the opportunity and I will give you the ability to do so. And when you do it in my strength and you do it by my power, then my spirit will do the work that you cannot do. My spirit will open doors for you that you could never open with 10,000 of you gathered against that door. My spirit can cause light to shine in a darkened heart so that they would see the truth of the message that you are proclaiming that is foolishness to the world. I will give you my spirit and it is by my spirit that this work will be done. And so, That brings us to the second major idea in our time together. I wanted to take time in the first portion of the message to examine actually the actual words that the Lord gave us. If we're going to bring our thought captive to his words with regard to the strategy that he has set forth for the health and growth of his church, I felt we needed to look at the five places in the New Testament where Jesus himself spoke to that strategy. But there's a second thing I want us to do as we wrap up our time together this morning, and that is this. I want us to draw three massive implications out of those five texts that we must embrace fully and unreservedly as the authorized messengers of this incredible strategy. And so let me give those to you very quickly. And the first of those is this. First major implication that we must embrace is this. We have been appointed as authorized witnesses. 
Throughout these texts, Jesus speaks on at least twice, or at least twice in these texts, to the fact that, that the men that are receiving these words have been actually appointed by him as witnesses. Uh, and, and so as witnesses, they have been authorized to do two things. They have been authorized to announce that an atonement for remission of sins had been made. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am, I am authorizing you today to go with that message. And wherever you go with that message, you never have to worry about whether or not what you are saying is accurate or true. When you go in my name and with my authority, you, have, you, you are official emissaries of a message I'm giving you, and that message is simple. It is this, that an atonement has been made for the remission of sins, and you are authorized to announce that. And then secondly, you are authorized to extend that offer to anyone who will accept God's terms. You know, when I uh, run into uh, people from time to time, I meet people who have needs, and they come to me and they are, are and, and I know you do the same thing. You have the same thing happen in your own ministries where, where somebody comes to you and you can see the need and, uh, and, and you wish that you had the authority to simply say, look, if you just go down to the First National Bank and go in and tell them to give you $200,000, uh, it'll solve your problem. And the issue with that is not really the intent or, or the heart behind what you've said. It's that you have no authority to make that announcement. You, you have not been given any authoritative uh, ground to stand in front of another person and say, now, if you go to First National Bank, there's $200,000 there that have been made available for people in your circumstance. You have not been authorized to make that announcement, nor have you been authorized to extend that offer to that person. In other words, you can't say to that person, now, you know what? Actually, uh, if you'll just sign here, uh, you can go ahead and spend that $200,000. And when you go down to the First National Bank, they'll honor it uh, because you signed here. You have no authority and no ability to do that but you have been given authority and ability to do something far more incredible. You have been authorized by the head of the church to speak in his name and to say to anybody who will listen that there has, a, there, there has been a remission for sins that has been made and it is available to you if you will repent and you will believe. And you can take them to passages like Acts 17.30, in Acts 26, 20, uh, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul did as he announced this uh, to the world that God sent him to. And of course, our text for this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20, where we are reminded by Paul that we are ambassadors sent by God in the world because God is, through Christ, reconciling the world. And we are the ones who have been commissioned and authorized with that message. And it is our mission as part of this strategy to beseech men and women who are in that world to be reconciled to God. And so the first implication that we have to embrace is this. We have been appointed and made authorized witnesses of this incredible ministry. Here's the second major thing that we must embrace. 
We have been appointed as authorized witnesses, number one. But number two, we must strive to be credible witnesses of this message that we have been commissioned to announce and to advance. And the reason for that is this. We believe these truths personally, and we believe these truths passionately. Oftentimes when I'm at a restaurant eating and I'm trying to decide what I want to eat, and uh, I happen to have a, a waiter that's friendly, I'll ask the waiter, so tell me, when you eat here, uh, what do you eat? What do you like here? What's good? And, and sometimes I'll get a waitress or a waiter, and they are phenomenal. They'll, they just go on and on about the dish. Man, this is the best dish we have. Everybody likes this dish. I love this dish. It's my favorite dish. And as soon as they say, I love this dish, it's my favorite dish, I am far more disposed to buy that dish. But when you have a waiter who says, well, I don't really know, you know, I'm not really sure. A lot of people eat here. I never eat here. I've never eaten the food here, so I really don't know. All of a sudden, you, you, are, you, you find yourself wondering, did I come to the right place to eat? And I know that's a very poor example of what we're talking about, but you and I have been appointed authorized witnesses, and part of what qualifies us as an authorized witness is the fact that we personally have experienced these truths. We believe them and we are passionate about them. And because we believe them and because we are passionate about them, we are committed to guard these truths carefully and graciously against anything that would come against them. And by the way, this is why a conference uh, like this one is so important. This is why we need to be reminded, as our brother Ken Ham said, about the importance of the words of God in Genesis 1 and 2 with regard to how all of creation came to be. The creation that God is in the process of redeeming and, and restoring was created by his word, and it is being restored by his word. And you and I have an obligation to guard these truths carefully and graciously and yet boldly. And how we thank the Lord for uh, the ministry of men like Ken Ham and others whose passion to guard the words of Christ and, and the authoritative uh, truth uh, taught by them uh, is, is one we ought to celebrate. And then thirdly, as, as we uh, strive to be credible witnesses, we believe these truths passionately and we guard them graciously and, and boldly and we celebrate these truths joyfully. I mean, think about the immense privilege that you and I have, not just to know the gospel and know about the gospel, but to have received it, that our eyes were opened, that our sins were forgiven, that there is reconciliation in our lives between us and God. And then we value these truths supremely. We value the truth of the gospel above our own life. I wonder sometimes in my own life if the reason that my evangelistic efforts are so fruitless is because I am not willing to pay much for those efforts to go forward. The minute there's opposition, the minute there is someone coming against the words, I, I, I quiet down. I move myself out of the firing line. I don't want to be in the conflict. And yet you look at the history of the church and you see as God began to grow that church around the world, how many times he took very humble servants who themselves were timid or, or afraid or, 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 or not, not large and, and in charge people. And yet he put them in incredibly strategic places. And at the moment when they most needed it, he gave them the boldness to simply open their mouth 
and speak the truth about Jesus. And entire nations were opened up and reached for the gospel. We strive to be credible witnesses of the gospel we have been commissioned to advance because we believe personally and we guard carefully and we celebrate joyfully and we value supremely. And then we do this because we display this gospel daily in our own lives. And I think one of the most effective ways to communicate the gospel in our own families is through the word of God as that word begins to display itself in our marriage. It begins to display itself in how we handle our friendships, our, our children, our parents, how we, how we do life. And all of a sudden, when we are bringing our life captive to the word of God, and that word of God is transforming our speech, it's transforming our thinking, it's, it's transforming our relationships with one another, then all of a sudden that gospel becomes credible. We don't make the gospel credible. The credible, the credibility of the gospel comes because God stated it and it is God's gospel. And it is credible whether we live credibly or not. But I would suggest to you that one of the implications of being an authorized witness is to live in such a way that we adorn the gospel with the beauty of our life. And we certainly have texts throughout the scripture that speak to that. We could ask it this way, what, what power does the gospel, and if I'm a lost person and I'm watching two believers or I'm watching a church full of people that are not reconciled to one another and whose lives are in relational disarray and whose families are in relational disarray, why would I give any credibility or have any desire for a gospel that wasn't powerful enough to fix that small problem when I'm trying to fix the big problem of my own alienation to God? And obviously, theologically, you and I know the answer to that. The answer to that, it was never what you saw in the life of another believer. That, that, that was never the source of the power. The source of the power is the Spirit of God doing the work of opening your eyes so that you see the truth of the gospel. But again, you and I have enough text in the Scripture to know that the Lord wants us to live in ways that reflect that power in our own life. And then finally, we... Uh, can carry out this commission because we have received an enablement uh, from the Holy Spirit. And that's the whole point to the passage in Acts. And that is why I believe that part of doing the strategy is bringing our, not just our thinking, but our living in line with the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly Paul's point to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and in chapter 4, where he talks about walking according to the direction of the Spirit. You can see this in Galatians, where Paul talks to us very frankly about walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, that we would literally live out our lives in line with what the Spirit has said. And that the Word of Christ, inspired by the Spirit from Christ, dwell in us richly so that we don't grieve the Spirit by our, our trampling over those words and we don't quench the Spirit as He begins to convict us about that. And so this morning, as we close our time and we come to the end of these texts in our New Testament where the head of the church has given us the unique, singular, timeless strategy for the growth and the advancement of His church in the world around us, Will we bring our thinking captive? We have been given a gospel that is abundantly sufficient. 
And we have been given a ministry that is unusually large. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. We have been given very specific instruction about preaching that gospel, not in our not in the words of human wisdom, but in the words that were given to us. And then initiating people into the faith and then instructing them so that they grow in their understanding of the word of Christ that is going to sanctify them. And then we've been promised an enablement. And gentlemen, I wonder if the reason we're not doing this more in our churches is not because the Holy Spirit is not energizing us But have we been honestly walking in the Spirit? Have we been lining up our lives and our ministries in line with the words of the Spirit that He has given to us? Evangelism is not tied up in five verses or five paragraphs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's articulated there. But the work of the gospel, the work of the ministry, the work of evangelism is is a holistic work that is carried out by by God's church, all of us, and it is done individually as we live our lives in obedience to the words of that gospel, the words of Christ, and we carry those words boldly and unashamedly in the power of the Spirit to the nations around us. May God help us to do this. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to take His Word and use it in our lives. Lord, thank You for our time together in Your Word. I pray that what I have said today Uh, would line up with your words and that your spirit would do the work in me and in each of us that only you can do. Lord, your words have been very clear and very direct and very piercing. And you have made abundant promise that there would be fruit that would remain and that your spirit would give us enabling grace and energizing power. And so, Lord, we take you at your word. We ask that Uh, as a fellowship of churches gathered together at a conference about bringing our thoughts captive to your words, that we would celebrate your truth in a hostile world, that we would defend your truth to the world around us, that we would stand for Christ graciously, that we would celebrate the creation that you have uh, given us and that you created just as you said you did. And in the midst of all of that, Lord, May we embrace the words you have given us about your gospel and about our mission. And may we individually and collectively and as a fellowship of churches come together and believe those words and obey those words and actually do those words. And Lord, may the work of our hands not be the work of our hands. May it be the work of your hands. May it be energized and blessed by your spirit. And may it bring glory and honor to your name and to the name of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.